Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up to Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia. In other words, please open to Galatians chapter 1. Today we're going to spend our time examining verse 10. And this is God's word. May we hear it and receive it as such. Galatians 1.10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you this morning that you have invited us to praise you, that you have called and commanded us to gather here in your name, that you would be praised, that we would be blessed. So come and bless us, O oh Lord. Come and pour yourself out in us and through us for us and for your sake. Heavenly Father, as we face this morning fear, may you provide faith. When we battle with impurity, O oh Lord, would you come and clean us? Because if you would clean us, we will be clean indeed. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless the time that is in front of us, that you would set it apart for the holy and sacred ministry of your word and spirit. We ask you all of these things and we declare our gratitude because of all the things that are bound in Christ. Thank you for the one true gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Whose pleasure do you seek? Seems like an easy enough question, right? Whose pleasure do you seek? And we can apply that question in a myriad of relationships, right? Husbands, whose pleasure do you seek in this moment, yours or hers? Wives, whose pleasure do you seek in this moment, his or yours or y'all's? If you've done premarital counseling with me, which few in this room have, I often talk about us in marriage rather than me and you. The idea of union between husband and wife is a vital one, but it is not the only vital one. Unity in the family. Children, whose pleasure do you seek? Dads, moms, your siblings? Whose pleasure... Do you seek in the classroom? Yours, your teachers, your classmates, whose pleasure do you seek at work? Your boss, your employer, your colleagues? We don't usually ask the question this way though, right? If we ask it at all. I think most of us go day to day through our lives thinking we seek the Lord's pleasure and we seek to do for ourselves what pleases us within the guidelines and goalposts 
of the word of God and, and God's pleasure. But I think if we're honest, we will remember times or we will recognize, even in current times, that we really do want the people around us or above us or below us to like us, to think well of us, to think very, very well of us. We want to think well of ourselves. And that's not all bad. Please don't hear me say that means you are selfish. It just means that you are in danger and desperate need to run your motives and attitudes and hopes through the gospel before coming to clear conclusions. Scripture tells us the human heart is deceitful. The longer you live, the more you might see that that is profoundly true. Another way of getting at this question that, that verse 10 really encapsulates is to ask, what kind of influence do you want God to have over your life? What kind of influence do you want God to have over your life? The abstract among us want to discuss what kind of influence God should have over us. The pragmatic among us might prefer to ask the question, what influence could he have over my life? The reformed might ask, what kind of influence must he have over my life, and therefore he will have it? What obstacles does God face in having influence over your life? Who's in the way? What's in the way? What obstacles must he overcome to influence you? Now, it's a broad enough question we could run in a thousand directions. We're not going to do that. We are going to recognize that these questions come about because of this verse 10. Where do I seek popularity? Where do I yield and compromise based on peer pressure? Where do I engage in the art and even science of people pleasing? Because popularity seeking, peer pressure, people pleasing, in all its forms, Paul is telling us, idolatrous. Not might be, could be, but idolatrous. We see this because Paul has used uncompromising language in verses 6 through 9. Do you want a refresher? Let's have a refresher. Paul writes to the Galatians, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort 
the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to him, to you, let him be damned to hell. Let him be anathema. Let him be cursed eternally. That's what Paul is saying. If you muddle or meddle with the gospel, you belong because of your allegiance to the schemes of hell in hell. Then he goes on. Paul reminds these churches. Remember, he planted them. He built them. He knows them. And he goes on to say, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let that person be anathema, accursed. Paul is not really cutting with a scalpel here. True? This is more of an axe, a claymore. He is saying here that the gospel message is unchangeable. The culture, the moments, the peer pressure, the understanding of the people, they all must bow to the truth of the gospel or be condemned in your allegiance to the enemies of God. This is absolutely uncompromising language. But how do we get into it? How do we respond to it? Let's try a a small activity here. Follow me and fill in the blank. I change my blank to suit the preferences of my listeners. I change my blank because so-and-so dislikes blank. You get it? When do you curb your language? Not... When in holiness are you being sanctified away from wrong language, bad language, bad use of language? But rather, within the bounds of what is true, when do you shrink back from truth? When do you change your attitude? Maybe you don't change your words. Maybe you change your attitude. Maybe you change your fervor. You know what is true, and in that moment, you have to say what is true, but you say it half-heartedly, conveying, meh. I change my language to suit the people whose pleasure I am seeking. I change my language so as not to upset or discomfort the person whose favor I think I need. 
Am I now seeking the approval of people? Don't get offended by the word man there. It's not male. It's people. It's mankind. Paul wants his hearers to understand that he knows that they don't like what he just said. But they don't have to like it. They have to hear it. I think many times Christians get intense moments, difficult situations, and think that they are trying to achieve peace when they're trying to protect a false civility. Well, how can I influence them if they don't like me? How can you influence them if you don't tell them the truth? They don't need to like you. They need to love Jesus. That's what Paul's saying here. And there's only one true gospel because there's only one true living God. And Paul is saying that there is a binary relationship between the gospel message of the Christ and his grace and all other religions, philosophies, attitudes, endeavors. I think in our cultural moment, people are basically promoting salvation through humanitarian effort. I really believe that that's kind of the goal. They have kind of lots of goals, right? The people around us that are not in Christ. They, they want to do this, they want to do that, and they want... So I think their highest goal is self-involvement and therefore pride in this exaltation of humanity. Now, let's be very clear. Do we like that people are hungry? Do, do we like that people don't have places to sleep? Are, are we on the side of those who would giggle and cackle with starvation, homelessness, etc.? Do we see sick people and go, ha ha, bet you deserve it? Of course not. But is their highest good, their ultimate good, found in food or shelter or health. It's, I mean, it's not, because I know it's not for me. My highest good is the praise of Christ. And in those moments, some of my pains recede. Because I'm caught up in the greater thing. We do not have a gospel of merit. We have a gospel of grace. We don't have a gospel of only the grace needed to make up the difference between you and what God would call you to. That is the most dominant mistaken gospel I see in the church today. I need Jesus, but I only need him a little. And my goal is to need him less and less and less as I become more moral or obedient on the outside. 
But we must remember, and we've said it before, and we will say it a lot here in this letter, that the gospel is not about what you do for God. It's about what God has done for us in Christ. So when we see Paul using this uncompromising language in verses 6 through 9, and then immediately putting himself and all of us on trial as people pleasers, I think there's a sense in which he's saying this is a default reality for us. We want to be liked. But the commission that Christ has given us excludes all forms of people pleasing. It does not mean that we don't seek to please our spouse, our child, our boss, our customer. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we seek to do so in truth according to the righteous word of God and the revelation that it gives Listen to J. Gresham Machen. He says, I must preach that gospel, this one true gospel, without fear or favor. It is not my gospel, but Christ's. And I have no power to change it to suit the fancies of men. Where is the gospel compromisable? What's more important than explaining, teaching, training, trusting, believing and living the gospel? That you would seek something lesser, exchanging this greater thing for it. The gospel that Christ has entrusted to us is not ours. It's not ours in the sense that we're given the, quote, freedom, unquote. Those are scare quotes. It's not really freedom. We have not been given the freedom to edit, omit, adjust, or even outright deny the content of the gospel because it only belongs to me in the sense that I possess it and I proclaim it. I do not govern it. And I do not have permission to edit it. The one true gospel demands our unswavering loyalty. See if I can help this come to life a little bit. I'm 19 years old. We are crossing a bridge in Delaware on our way to the University of Richmond. The year is 1994. I believe it was late August, mid-August. And this was before the digital age in the last millennium, my kids like to remind me. And I am in the back seat with my parents up front driving And I was holding this book. Moms are great because they hold on to things you don't think are valuable. 
And then they give them back to you when they realize that you will realize it's more valuable than you thought it was when you let go of it. Thanks, Ma. But I was holding this book, and it was sort of like a high school graduation album. It was filled with senior pictures and names and hometowns. So it was sort of like a yearbook, but it was a yearbook of incoming freshmen to the college I was headed to, which was pretty cool. And it had in it hometown activities that people were involved with, sports they played, varsity letters, you know, drama play, whatever your hobbies and insights and activities were. So you could get a face, a name, and something to connect to them with. And this was, please pardon the blasphemy, my Bible that summer. The second I got it, I was pouring over its pages, quizzing myself on names. I literally had a piece of paper that I would slide over so that I could go down the line and memorize everybody's name and everybody's hometown and one activity. I didn't expect that I could get all the activities, but my goal was twofold when I was headed to college. I remember this so clearly. My first goal was to graduate. <laughs> Might have been more in risk than I want to say. My second goal was to become something there that I did not really believe was ever true of me before. I wanted to be cool. When I was growing up, my parents taught us to be kind and generous and thoughtful, and most of the time I think we lived up to that. But I also had a wide number of friendly relationships. Within that, I had some friends, and then within that, I had some strong friends, lifelong friends, lasting friends, two of whom still worship in this church. But I wasn't popular in the sense that I wanted to be. I don't know if you can relate to this. I'm sure all of you were the center of attention in your high schools. But there's a gravity to being cool. Isn't there? There's, there's a gravity, a pull, an orientation to wanting other people to think favorably about you. Whatever you would define as us, you want to be in with us, and whoever you would define as them, then your allegiance doesn't matter there most of the time. And then we yield to the one who says, love your enemy, and the Christian life gets murky in an instant. They called it the book of faces. Don't get it confused with Facebook. But I called it Facebook for years. I need my Facebook. There were 800 students in my freshman class. And by the time I had finished crossing the Delaware Bridge, I knew every face, name, 
and hometown and activity for every single person that I would encounter as a freshman. Because if you want people to like you, you have to know how to prompt them to talk about themselves. You know, like I'm doing right now. People love to talk about themselves. Maybe too much. And then there are other people who don't want to say a word for fear of not being liked. So some of us are active in making the liking happen, and some of us are active in passively making sure that no one dislikes us. There's a pull in either direction here. But Paul is saying, cool is an empty pursuit. It's an empty pursuit. One, people are contradictions. We like what we say we don't. We don't like things we say we love. We do things we don't advertise that we do, and we don't do things that we know we should do, must do, get to do. People are complicated. But the truth is not complicated. It is bold. But we are fearful. Maybe just me. Martin Luther, in talking about this verse, this passage, he says this. It's a, it's a little bit of a long quote. It'll be up in the realm later today for you to get. So you don't have to worry about scribbling it. It's Martin Luther. Luther says, this is not preaching that gains favor from men and from the world. For the world finds nothing more irritating and intolerable than hearing its wisdom, its righteousness, its religion, and its power condemned. For if we denounce men and all their efforts, it is inevitable that we quickly encounter bitter hatred, persecution, excommunication, condemnation, and execution. Those are pretty polarized concepts, yes? Nothing more irritating, nothing more intolerable than being opposed. We live right now in one of the most obvious and powerful idolatrous moments that I have ever experienced or imagined reading through history. Because right now, small communities of people get to declare how everyone else must speak about them. Not everyone else must just, you know, be civil with people. It is a mandated affirmation. I've heard people say the greatest threat to Christianity is its archaic doctrines of human sexuality. 
There are people, pastors, quote, scare quotes, who say that Christianity must be reformed, re-imaged for a new millennium. And when they say that, people agree. It's not that they're the kook that nobody's listening to. Is the whole clash between Christianity and the world only about human sexuality? Of course not. The God who made everything declares its proper use. This is a modern form of a historic paganism. That's it. We overcomplicate this so much. You all must choose. Whose gospel will you affirm? Whose voice will you thunderously applaud? For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Paul, filled with statements here, offers a provocative and haunting question. So he furthers his question. Or am I trying to please man? Do you think the false teachers are happy with Paul? What's the old Rodney King why can't we all just get along? We can get along as long as I don't have to speak allegiance to you or your God. Am I now seeking the approval of man? I battle with the word now. Like this is new for Paul? Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Was there a time when Paul was seeking the approval of man? Hasn't he always been seeking the approval of God? But he thought he was. Death warrants in hand, he thought he was. Martyrs buried beneath the rocks that the minions below him throw by his authority? He thinks he does. But his sincerity is not a qualifier of truth. And it's not a proof of truth. I take great comfort in the single word in the third section of this passage, this verse. If I were still. Ooh, that's powerful. If I were still trying to please man, what? It means that Paul knows that there was a time in his life where he's memorizing faces and names, hometowns and activities. He wants other people to like him, to serve him, to think well of him, so that he can achieve more and more and more for God. Many horrific things are done in the name of God. That doesn't mean he's authorized them. 
longer you walk in faith, the longer you have read the Bible morning after morning or evening after evening or both, you can begin to survey the breadth and depth of Paul's life and you can see that in a very real and ultimate sense, Paul trades all of his accomplishments for unfathomable afflictions. Accomplishments in the faith. Read Philippians 3. Just start the letter in 3 and read forward. And get a taste of Paul's resume. And ask yourself, do you measure up? Because as Paul is telling the Galatians that you may not muddle, omit, or edit the gospel, he's also saying, therefore, the God who communicates this gospel of grace to us also, therefore, has the right and power to omit, edit you, your choices, your loyalties, your priorities. There was a time, Paul says, where he was still trying to please people. And he puts that history in opposition to, contrast with, I would not be a servant of Christ. It, it doesn't get more polarized than that, does it? It doesn't get more binary. You can seek to please people. You can serve Christ. In every word you say, in every thought you think, in every action you choose, in every desire you want, you can please people or serve Christ. Every parent knows a moment where your kid's in crisis or injury and you have to do for them that which is not pleasing in the moment. Can tell too many of those stories because my kids threw themselves into whatever they were doing. We were scraping out knees or, or you know, you know, washing out our eyes or or any of a thousand things. They're not happy in those moments. They don't feel fulfilled in those moments, and they're not saying in the depth of their heart, "Oh, I'm so grateful that my dad is torturing me right now." Did I ever torture you? But it can be perceived that way. Why is God trying to take X out of my life? Because it's poison. Because it's debilitating. Because it's cancer. Why does God keep wanting me to? So that you will flourish. In your body, and your soul. So that you will flourish. Because he knows the best designs. If I were still trying to please man, there's such joy in the word still. Paul gets it. He knows us. Better than that, God gets it. God knows us. There was a time in Paul's life where the most important thing in his life was what people thought of him. Kids. Kids. You will have to choose 
You will. Are you going to bend the knee to Christ or to Scripture? You will have to choose. You will have to choose whose pleasure you seek. But here's one of the awesome undergirding, strengthening support structures of the gospel. The gospel doesn't tell you to do to get from God. The gospel doesn't tell you if you would pray this way this often, if you would speak this way this often, if you would only, if you would, then God would. God is not a cosmic vending machine who takes pious quarters to pour out idolatrous longings. We want to please God. Reactionary. Responsively. Not in order to get, but because we've already gotten. Hear this very clearly. God is already pleased with us. Through Jesus Christ. In fact, the one true gospel declares that God is just as pleased with us as he is pleased with his son. The obedient one. Do you believe that? Wake up on a Tuesday, do you believe that? Do you think God's favor towards you ebbs and flows? His affection for you? grows or shrinks? God can't love you more than he does in this moment if you are in Christ. Are you serious? God can't love you more than he does already if you are in Christ. And he can't. God can't? Yeah. God can't love you less based on what you did last week, last month, or 30 years ago. Do you really believe that? In your bones, do you know that? How many of us are striving for God's favor when we already have it? How many of us are striving for the favor of others when you'll never get to keep it? You understand how fickle people are? How many celebrities get, quote, taken down? Maybe I'll use today's nomenclature, canceled. How many people in Hollywood right now are scared to death of being canceled? If all the people afraid of being canceled would actually do whatever would cancel them, they would find out that there's a whole remnant of believers who will delight to spend their money seeing things, enjoying things. But that's not the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel tells us that the favor we need, the favor we want, can only be found in Christ because he's the only one truly worthy of it. If there is a separation on the day of judgment 
then the favor of many whom we seek, we will never be able to keep anyway. And the favor we have in Christ will never be able to lose. Some say that obedience to God is costly. You ever thought about that? Obedience to God is costly. Might cost you time, finances, talent, effort, energy. But obedience is costly in a temporary sense. But it's also unavoidably tied to salvation, which is far more costly. Obedience costly, yes. Salvation costly, more. More. Paul trades accomplishment and favor for afflictions. The very people whose favor he sought, sought to kill him. Because they were already murderers. Why would bloodthirst not be offered to him? When he offered it to so many. So what do we do? How do we respond? What, what's the plan here? The plan is to understand that this life is binary. That there is no civility between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of hell in an eternal way. Enmity in the garden between the offspring of the woman and the serpent and all his minions. Always, always enmity. So make no mistake, God's plan of redemption is unfolding. And we must keep a divine perspective and be faithful during hard circumstances. One more piece, and then we'll apply it. There is a popular myth in the church. And when I say in the church, I'm not just talking about y'all. I'm talking about the church. The church in the world right now. And especially Western churches. The myth is one of cultural influence. Well, we can't tell them everything that's true, or they'll never give us a hearing. We can't be as polarized as that guy is because everybody hates him. So if I put myself somewhere between them and him, I will look good by comparison. And I want to do that so that I can influence the culture. A fully excluded minority can never influence that's the myth. How big is the Roman Empire? I mean, like, in all the empires of all the history of the world, they're top five, yes? I think maybe Britain's the only one who can claim more land and sea, right? Naval. Do you think 
the first generation Christians ever imagined there'd be a country on earth that would really believe that government and church should have a relationship such that the government doesn't oversee the church. Don't they think of themselves as house churches? Churches in a city? You get later in Acts and they start renting city spaces, amphitheaters or halls or synagogues or whatever. But do you really believe that first century church imagines the world of liberty and peace and First Amendment rights? Is that in their idea? Are they thinking about America as the glory? They're not. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm pretty fascinated and in love with our country. It's constitution. I don't love all our choices. It's kind of the best bad option at this point. But why do we think that we are entitled to the favor of a culture that hates God? And why do we think we can serve both in any given moment? Cool, I discovered, it's very overrated. Because what's cool here isn't there. <laughs> and there's a lot to keep track of. It's a lot easier to say, Lord, take my life and let it be all for you and for your glory. Isn't that the song? Take my life and let it be all for you and for your glory. This is the application. Whose pleasure do we seek? The pleasure of Christ that we revel in, not that we create. We revel in an already created and extended favor. Paul's only interest is pleasing Christ. Paul's only master, serving Christ. Is that true of you also? And if it is, why do you cling to the very sins for which Christ died to free you from? Remembering that the gospel is not about what you do for God. It is about what God in Christ has done for us. And sometimes the most faithful believers say things like this. Jan Hus in the 1400s said this. Therefore, faithful Christian, seek the truth. Listen to the truth. Learn the truth. Love the truth. Tell the truth. Learn the truth. Defend the truth. Even to death. And he was martyred 15 years later. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we do come as your servants who desire your glory Lord, we understand that we can compromise too easily and call it 
protecting ourselves from quarrelsomeness. Father, we know that we desire to be peacemakers, but do not let us turn the peacemaking call of your kingdom into political maneuvering. Forgive us for the times that we have shrunk back from telling people who we really are, or better, who you really are. But God, may you remind and encourage and nourish and strengthen in us the undeniable truth that you are already pleased with us. That Jesus Christ drank the cup of your wrath without mercy. That we would drink the cup of mercy and blessing every day in your kingdom without end. So God, forgive us for striving for the favor of others. Forgive us for the times when we have waffled God, forgive us for the times where we have compromised truth for smiles. God, may we see more and more in the weeks and months ahead the binary reality that we cannot belong to the world if we were taken from it and sent back to it as missionaries. Father God, forgive me for clinging to the very sins you died to release me from. May you be cool in my eyes. In Jesus' name we ask. And all God's people agree.